0: Thank you for listening to the collective church podcast collective is a church for the rest of us Which means if you've never been to church walked away from the church or are struggling to find a church to connect with you belong here There are so many great things going on at collective right now So make sure you are following us on social media at my collective church to stay in the loop. Now let's get into sunday's message Happy Mother's Day Collective. Uh, we know, like CT said, today is a day that brings all the feels, doesn't it? And you kind of sit in this place of maybe joy and sorrow. Maybe there's you know pain and hope or just everything in between. And so we want you to know that we're thankful that you're here with us today. Uh, every few years, I share a Mother's Day poem with our church that I love. I heard this uh, before my wife and I ever had kids, and I felt like it spoke to us in that season, and it speaks to us today. And so I'm going to share it with us this morning. It goes like this. It says, to those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate with you. To those who lost the child, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. To those who experience loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes, prods, tears, and disappointment, we walk with you. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have close relationships with their children, we celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with their children, we sit with you. To those who have lost their mothers, we grieve with you. To those who experience abuse at the hands of their own mother, we acknowledge your experience. To those who live through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those of you who are single and long to be married and mothering their own children, we mourn that life has not turned out the way that you longed for it to be. To those who step-parent, we walk with you on these complex paths. To those who will have emptier nests in the upcoming year, we both grieve and rejoice with you. To those who have placed children up for adoption, we commend you for your selflessness and remember how you hold that child in your heart. And to those of you who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprising, we anticipate with you. No matter how you feel on this Mother's Day, we want you to know that we see you, okay? So happy Mother's Day, and this is permission to feel all the feelings that come with a day like today. When I was a freshman in college, uh, admittedly, I didn't do a lot of the required reading. And by that, I mean I didn't do any of the required (laughs) reading. reading what i would do is i would convince my roommates to explain everything i needed to know while we walked to class because they didn't want me to flunk out of college and it's okay you can judge me for that it's a really messed up thing to do but at some point during college i had this come to jesus moment and i realized that i needed to do the reading and i'm very thankful i did this because one of the books i ended up reading my sophomore year was called the things they carried by author tim o'brien uh, and this book is incredible, and it absolutely changed my life. The Things They Carried is a collection of short stories about a platoon of American soldiers fighting on the ground in Vietnam. And O'Brien writes about the physical things these men carried. He writes about their rifles and their packs, photos of loved ones back home. But he also writes about the emotions they carried with them. Here's an excerpt from the book. He wrote, they carried all the emotional baggage of, of men who might die, grief terror, love, longing. They carried shameful memories. They carried the common secret of cowardice. These were intangibles, but the intangibles had their own mass and specific gravity. They had a tangible weight. My favorite line from this book is this. They carried all they could bear and then some, including a silent awe for the terrible power of the things they carried. Let's just sit on that for a second, because when we read that, that hits home, doesn't it? We know that feeling. We know what it feels like, because we do the same thing. We all carry more than we can bear, including the silent awe for the terrible power of the things we carry. And so over the last few weeks, we've been taking time to acknowledge the things that we carry in our own lives, the baggage that impacts who we are. It impacts how we see the world, how we approach our faith and relationship with God, and a ton more. And we've been choosing to dig into our souls so we can really begin to let go of the things that God doesn't want us to carry any longer. And today we're talking about the weight that I personally think is the most devastating. We're talking about shame. And I said this last week when we talked about insecurity, but I want to say it again. Insecurity and shame are not the same thing. Both of these will attack our identity and how we see ourselves, but they are both very different. Insecurity is this feeling of not being good enough and really it's a lack of self-confidence in who we are. But shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Insecurity can lead to shame and shame can lead to insecurity and we can carry both of these things at the same time but they are not the same. Shame often comes from our own actions and our own decisions. It really comes from our own mistakes, our own failures, and our own sin. And this leads us to this overwhelming sense of being unclean, of being dirty or stained. And a lot of us in this room feel shame because of the choices we have made. But shame doesn't always come from things that we have done. Sometimes shame comes from something that someone has done to us something that someone has said to us, something that someone else decided for us that makes us feel ruined or messed up or unworthy. Dr. Brene Brown, who wrote two of the best books I have ever read called Dare to Lead and Daring Greatly, says that shame is an epidemic in our culture. And according to her research, shame is directly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, suicide, and eating disorders. In other words, shame is destroying us. It's destroying our marriages. It's destroying our mental health, our friendships, our self-worth. And shame is a weight that we carry that often feels the heaviest. Last summer, uh, we raised funds to expand our Collective Kids environment so we could make Collective Kids the best children's ministry around. And one of the things I did leading up to this expansion was I reached out to a few of the churches that helped us get started, and I asked them to donate to the project. And honestly, I didn't expect anyone to respond, but about a week later, I got an email from uh, the lead pastor of Mount Christian Church in Bel Air, Maryland, and it simply said, we wanna give you 15K, just tell us where to send it. And this absolutely blew me away. Not only did I not expect anybody to respond, because anytime you ask for money, people say no, but I definitely didn't expect such a generous gift. But for a few months, I didn't hear from anyone else, and then a few weeks into the renovation, someone reached out to me from one of the churches I had sent an email to, and he said, hey, I want you to know that the lead pastor got your email, and I think you should call him and follow-up, right? And if you're in sales or marketing, that's a good tactic. You should do a follow-up. But then he added this. He said, just make sure that you act super humble and acknowledge how you know you screwed things up eight years ago and that you've grown from it, because if you do that, I'm sure he would think about helping. Right? And this crushed me. Because what he was referencing was a time before Collective ever started that I actually made the decision to cut ties with our original church planting organization because we did not agree on the vision for this church. And the decision I made upset a lot of people because of church politics that I didn't really understand or care about And so here I was eight years later, Collective is this amazing church. God is doing incredible things here. I mean, the email was because we had already outgrown this space, we needed to add new space just two years in. I personally had grown and have grown as a follower of Jesus and as a pastor. And yet I was being asked to sit in the mistake that they thought I made eight years ago in my 20s. And, And really, I would argue to this day that it wasn't a mistake, it definitely wasn't sinful. Yes, I did it in a way they didn't like, aggressively and confrontationally, but would you be shocked if I did it any other way? <laughs> right? And looking back, even though I know we made the right decision for this church and days like today are proof of that, I would absolutely approach it differently. But it had been eight years and he was not moving on or letting me move on either. And this messed me up. And here's the problem with shame. There were three responses to my email Response one, you're doing great work. We love to see that collective is flourishing. Response two, you made a decision we didn't like eight years ago, so prove to us that you're sorry and we'll reconsider. And response three, were the other churches that just straight ghosted me. And do you know what response sat in my soul? Let me rephrase that. Do you know which response still sits in my soul today? The second one, because that's what shame does, Shame tells us that we're unworthy. Shame tells us that we aren't good enough. Shame tells us that no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we grow, no matter how much we change, our mistakes will always define us. And I do want to say this to clarify. Shame is different than guilt, which is really important. Psychologists say that there are two paths that we can take when we mess up. We can go down the path of shame or we can go down the path of guilt. When you experience shame, what happens is you don't wanna deal with it, so what do you do? You try to hide it. You bury it deep down so it doesn't see the light of day. But if you realize that you are guilty, you'll deal with it. Typically you apologize, you own it. Shame is about who I am. Guilt is about what I did. Shame says I'm a bad parent. Guilt says I didn't show enough patience with my kids. Shame says I'm a horrible person. Guilt says I didn't treat that person as uncommon. Shame says I'm a terrible husband. Guilt says I hurt her feelings and I need to apologize. Shame says I'll never be who God wants me to be. Guilt says I chose my way over God's and I need to repent of that. Shame keeps us stuck, guilt moves us forward, right? Shame is about me and how I see myself when I mess up. But guilt is about others and me working to make things right with those I have hurt. And so shame is something that we all experience, but here's something that we have to understand about shame. Shame doesn't come from God. It doesn't. Shame does not come from God. Shame isn't a tool that God uses to try to force us to be better people. This isn't a weight that God lays on us so we know just how bad we are, so we know just how much we need him. That would be passive aggressive, and God is not passive aggressive. God doesn't use shame to get us to love him. When God created the world, shame wasn't a part of it. In fact, in Genesis 2, when talking about Adam and Eve, it says this, now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. They were living free of shame. But as the story goes, Satan begins to tempt them into disobeying, and they do. Adam and Eve mess up. They choose their own way over God's. They eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil after God told them not to. Putting it simply, they sin. And this is what happens next in Genesis 3, 7. It says, at that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. Right? Notice the change. Right? Shame entered the world when sin entered the world, when pain entered the world, when brokenness entered the world. Jumping ahead a few verses, let's look at how God responds to Adam and Eve, though. In verse 9, it says this, Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, meaning Adam. He said, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. And so what Adam is saying, he's saying, I was afraid because I messed up, right? i so I'm, I'm hiding. And we do the same thing. We hide from God because of the shame we carry, but God seeks out Adam and Eve in their hiding, in their shame, in their sin, and God is seeking us out as well. He doesn't want us to hide. He's asking the question to us, where are you? Why are you hiding? You don't need to feel unworthy. You don't need to feel unlovable. Where are you? And here's how God responds to Adam in verse 11. He asks the question, who told you that you were naked? This is one of my favorite moments in the Bible. I feel like he's a parent. I do this with my kid all the time. Like, why are you naked right now? Like, what's happening? <laughs> Right? And this is God approaching them in the way of a loving father. It's one of my favorite moments. And God finds Adam and Eve, and he asks them, who told you that you were naked? And what God is saying to them is, who told you that you needed to be ashamed? Right? Yes, you screwed up. Yes, you sinned. But who told you that that was your identity now? Who told you that you needed to hide from me? Who told you that? And God is asking us the same thing. Who told you? that you are unworthy of love and belonging because God never asks us to make our sin or someone else's sin our identity. He never requires that our mistakes become who we are. God sees us in our brokenness and asks, who said those things to you? Brene Brown says that shame has two loop tracks. The first is you are never good enough. Shame repeats over and over again that you are not a good enough husband Not a good enough mother, not a good enough friend, not a good enough employee, not a good enough follower of Jesus. The second loop track is who do you think you are? This is the track that plays as you try to break free from the weight of shame in your own life, as you work to step up in your marriage to be a better spouse, as you try a new parenting tactic and try to spend more time with your kids, as you fight to get out of debt, as you put yourself out there, shame asks, who do you think you are? In Daring Greatly, Brown reflects on the tension that women specifically feel in regard to shame. And all the statements I'm about to say are from that book. She says, be perfect, but don't make a fuss about it. And don't take time away from your family or your partner or your work to achieve your perfection. Don't upset or hurt anyone's feelings, but say what's on your mind. Dial the sexuality way up after the kids are down, the dog is walked, and the house is clean, but dial it way down at the PTO meeting. Just be yourself, but not if it means being shy or unsure. There's nothing sexier than self-confidence. Don't make people feel uncomfortable, but be honest. Don't get too emotional, but don't be detached either. Too emotional and you're hysterical, too detached and you're cold-hearted. Ladies in the room, does this sound about right? Do you sit in that tension every single day? And all of this comes down to this idea of wanting to be enough and ha- and shame what it does is it hides in the should. I should be better. I should do more. I should look this way, be this way, act this way. Women will work hard to be the perfect wife, mom, employee, friend, Christian, and they do this so they can call themselves and they can look at themselves and realize, am I doing it good enough? And they'll become highly critical of themselves and of others as a way of hiding their sense of shame. Women constantly play the superior, inferior game. I'm better than you, I am worse than you. And either way, I don't have to be real with you. I'll be nice to you and slam you behind your back so I feel better about myself. They'll become codependent, co-addicts, or control freaks in order to gain love and security and not have to feel their shame. I will let you control me or define me, or I will try to control you or define you. And all of that is a way of hiding from shame. Man, let me talk to you for a minute. You already know this, but shame has the exact same message for you. You are not enough. It's the same voice. But for men, it primarily revolves around performance and capitalizes on our failure. And the moments where men fail, the voices we hear echo what we've heard in our past. You are weak. You are not a man. You are not enough. You are not the provider you should be. You are a screw-up. You're a failure. You are worthless. Shame is about failure for men. It's why getting fired or messing up as a parent or underperforming in any way, shape, or form is literally one of the most shameful things that we can experience in our lives. So men, when we experience shame, what do we do? Usually it's one of two things. We either shut down entirely, especially emotionally, or we get really, really angry. And so we either get really passive or really aggressive, but they're both just ways that we try to hide our shame. Because men, we've all grown up with a lot of experience of when we were weak, when we fell short, when we failed and other people pounced, Maybe it was your dad. Maybe it was a spouse or an ex-girlfriend. Maybe it was a leader that you trusted. Maybe it was your friends. And we try to hide behind being really passive or really aggressive. And so going back to Adam and Eve and understanding the loop track that plays in our minds, we have to ask ourselves, why am I hiding? Why am I hiding behind the anger or the addiction or really just the facade? And the second thing we have to ask ourselves is who told me that? Who told me that I was unlovable? Who told me that I was unworthy? Who told me that I am defined by my sins and my failures? In the Bible, the word shame is most closely related to the word disgrace, meaning not grace or non-grace. It's this idea of not deserving grace. It's the sense of being too broken, too sinful, and too messed up. That is what shame is. And so let's think about this for a moment. Disgrace is believing that we aren't worthy of grace, and shame keeps us stuck carrying the weights we shouldn't be carrying because we think we deserve the pain, we deserve the loneliness, we deserve the grief. But grace is getting something better than we deserve. Grace is endless second chances. Grace is life-changing and life-giving. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. And there is no catch. There are no loopholes that disqualify us. Grace is not contingent on anything that we've done for God, but what God has done for us because there's nothing you can do to make God love you more and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. That is grace. And so write this down. The only way to truly let go of shame is to truly experience grace. You want to be free from the shame you are carrying from your divorce. It's grace. You want to let go of the weight of years of addiction and the impact that has had on your family and your faith and your self-worth. Grace. You want to heal from the affair. Grace. You want to let go of the stigma that comes with battling mental illness, the suicidal thoughts and the suicide attempts. Grace. It is grace and always grace. The problem, though, is that this world is full of ungrace. That's why everything feels heavy all the time. That is why we feel so stuck in our shame. The world is great at making us feel like we are a disgrace. And so here's the second thing I want you to write down today. True grace only comes from God. In the book of Hebrews, he also writes this in Hebrews 12.1, it says, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. All right, the author's talking about the things we carry, things like shame. Verse two says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Jesus endured the cross disregarding its shame for us because the joy awaiting him on the other side of that pain was our forgiveness, right? The joy was us being able to experience grace and have a true relationship with God. It's us being able to let go of the weights that drag us down every single day. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. And most of the time, I'll share this verse to remind us that grace isn't something that we can earn. Right? It's, it's not something that we can do all these good things to take hold of. It's just something that we receive. But the opposite of that is true as well. We cannot screw up so much that we are unable to experience grace. We can never be too broken, too sinful, or too lost to be saved by the grace of God. Now think about this with me. Grace is the truth that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you could do to make God love you less. But, but let's switch this up, and let's take God out of this and drop in something else, okay? And I would encourage you to write this down and think about it this week. But fill in the blank with me. Grace means that there's nothing you can do to make your friends love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make your friends love you less. All right, think about that most of the relationships we have, even the best ones, feel conditional. How about this? There's nothing you can do to make this world love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make this world love you less. I think we'd all agree that that is absolutely not true. You make one mistake, you you do one thing that other people don't like, you disagree with the mob of public opinion, and the world will cancel you in a moment how about this? There's nothing you can do to make social media. I'm not even going to finish that one. That's not worth it. You all know that one. But how about this? There's nothing you can do to make your parents love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make your parents love you less. This, this might be the closest we get to the grace of God. And some of you would say this feels mostly true when it comes to your parents. But some of you, when you think about your parents, you know this isn't true. Last one. There's nothing you can do to make make you love yourself more and there's nothing you can do to make you love yourself less. Now, I'll just speak for myself on this one and I'll say that I know this isn't true. I am harder on myself than anyone else. The shame I carry in my life has way more to do with me and my belief that's who I am than anyone else. Do you see where I'm going with this? The only way to truly let go of shame is to truly experience grace and true grace only comes from God not the world, not people. The closest we ever really get to experiencing grace through other people is that sometimes there is mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Sometimes we experience that in our relationships, but the world is full of ungrace. And when we mess up, we feel like a disgrace. And the only way to heal from that is through Jesus. When he asks us, who told you that? And he tells us to stop hiding. Listen, if you are not a follower of Jesus and you are struggling with shame, you need to understand that it starts with faith in him. You cannot receive this anywhere else in this world. And the way that you choose that, the way that you go public with that belief is baptism. Anytime you see this trough up here on stage, that is what we are celebrating. Someone choosing Jesus, someone choosing grace, to live in that place instead of living in a place of shame and baptism doesn't save you. God's grace saves you. But baptism is the action that the Bible pairs up with the acceptance and the choosing of grace. So if you are not a follower of Jesus, this is where you start. Let me finish with this. Every single week of this series, there's been a theme verse, and typically I read it at the beginning, but I'm gonna close with it today. It comes from Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. This is a little bit of a paraphrase of it, but it says this. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. The Bible says that there's nothing greater than God's wonderful gift of grace. That grace is what sets us free. That grace brings freedom from our sin, freedom from our past, and the freedom from having to keep carrying the weight that has messed us up. That grace brings us comfort and hope. That grace gives us strength to keep going. That is, by God's grace we can be saved. Scripture teaches us that grace is all we need, that grace is for everyone, and that we live this life where we are given grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And when we come to Jesus, we will find grace when we need it the most. When we mess up, we do not need to hide because it's grace. Not shame, Not you're not good enough, Not you're unlovable, not who do you think you are, but grace. Let's pray. God, shame. Shame is this thing that a lot of us have been carrying for a really long time. God, because we, we have these secrets, we have these things we've done in our life that we don't we don't want to tell anybody about. God, these things that have been done to us, these these words that have been said to us. Um, God, these ways that we have fallen short and we, we know it. But instead of being able to move on from it, we hide. And the shame becomes so much of who we are. And God, we, we read in Genesis and we look at this story of Adam and Eve, where really they made this decision that brought all the pain and destruction into the world. God, the pain we experience today, the shame we experience today, the brokenness we experience today came down to one decision they made. And God, you still seek them out. God, you still look at them and say, "Where are you? Why are you hiding? Who told you that you needed to do that?" And God, you did that even though you knew what came after that sin. And that's pain we still feel today. So God, I pray that we, when we think about these things that we're carrying, when we think about shame, we understand that you are seeking us out in that pain, in those mistakes, and in that brokenness. And God, you're asking us, "Who told you that?" God, who told you you're unworthy? Who told you that you're unlovable? God, I pray this week we really wrestle with what does this look like in our life when we begin to truly let go of the shame that we carry. God, this weight that brings us down, that impacts everything we do. God, it impacts our marriages and our mental health, our self-worth. Really, God, it impacts days like today in ways that we don't want it to impact anymore. And God, ultimately, we're thankful for grace. God, we're thankful for endless second chances. We're thankful that there's nothing we can do to make you love us more, and there's nothing we can do to make you love us less. But God, I pray that we can live in that place. God, that we understand that we can't receive that anywhere else in this world. We can't give it to ourselves. We don't get it from people, but only from you. And God, when we truly embrace that, that that's when we begin to let go of our shame. God, we thank you and love you and pray these things in your name, amen.